Hi, I'm Yves Figui. In this episode of Modern Law, a discussion about the legal profession heading into 2023 at a time of incredibly rapid change. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. My guest today is Jordan Furlong, a legal sector analyst based in Ottawa, former legal journalist and editor-in-chief of National, whose work focuses now on change in the legal industry, legal regulation, and lawyer formation. He's also the author of the law21.ca blog and his published book, Law is a Buyer's Market, Building a Client First Law Firm. He's also a good friend. Jordan Furlong, welcome to the show. Eve, thank you so much. It is terrific to be back again. It's always great to have you here. And uh, this is one of my favorite conversations of the year because we can unpack everything that happened over the last 12 months and sort of dig in. So let me just set the table, perhaps by sharing a few key developments or pointing to a few key developments uh, during the year that was 2022. So listen, we had a, we had a mixed bag of economic uncertainty, not angst, <laughs> much, uh, much of it driven by obviously inflation, possible recessionary economic conditions. These are all challenging, obviously, for businesses worldwide, including for law firms and legal departments. We've seen... Tech giants stumble due to, some would call it mismanagement or their misreading of the room on a range of issues. Also, they've been hit by economic turmoil. Obviously, there's some billionaire hubris out there, maybe. (laughs) Just a little bit. We'll we'll get to that later. (laughs) Just a bit. Meanwhile, you got labor markets. There's volatility there. That seems to be upending everything, even for law firms again. There's social and political unrest polarization, environmental catastrophe, global health crises, all of which seem to be compounding on one another in different ways around the world. Cybersecurity is a nightmare as well. And I haven't even spoken about war in Europe and uh, global supply chains being reorganized for geopolitical reasons. So amidst all of this, it seems to me that there are many pieces that are moving around at an incredibly rapid pace. It seems to be more than usual almost. Uh, And again, you know, the metaverse got hyped as the next emerging web technology, then it almost overnight, it got unhyped. Maybe it's due for a comeback. I don't know. We saw the rise of NFTs. We saw a crypto crash, uh, crypto's walk of shame. Then then we saw the acceleration of uh, generative AI and so many other innovations that have huge potential to disrupt everyone. Uh, I mean, we we even achieved uh, hydrogen fusion like a week ago. So uh, I know I know it's early days on a lot of these things, but still, you know, where to start? Is it all anarchy and are we losing our grip? Are we bracing for even more disruption than what we had not yet quite become accustomed to? Uh, when you when you take it all in, what is it that you see in terms of the headwinds we're facing for, for I guess, for business in general, but for the legal industry uh, in particular? Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay, um, that's uh, no small order <laughs> to try to try to wrap up into into a package and put a. You don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to address every point, but I'm just saying it seems to me that there's a lot happening at once. Mm-hmm. There really is a lot happening at once, and I don't think it's coincidental. Uh, I don't think it's just bad luck or you know all the guests showing up early for the party uh, at the same time. Um, a, a lot of what we're seeing here is. Uh, fundamentally systemic and and systemic at at such a macro level that we don't 
really tend to to necessarily see it. We have to pull the camera way, way, way back to to, to appreciate it. Um, a good model for thinking about this is a term that I've seen coined by um, uh, an historian and analyst named Adam Tooze, and he refers to it as the polycrisis. And I think that's a useful way of looking at it. It is several overlapping and uh, overlapping crises which intensify and accelerate each other. And, and it really is all uh, bringing into question some of the fundamental um, assumptions we make and the models that we've, we've been working on. And you can look at it pretty much any dimension you like, political and economic and sociological and environmental. And, and the thing of it is none of it's really unexpected in the sense that if, if you do take the historical view, you see every 80 or 90 years ago, we need to reboot the global system in, in one way or another. And, you know, and sometimes it requires a war and sometimes it requires a depression and sometimes it requires all sorts of uh, exciting new developments that we haven't, we haven't experienced yet. So, so that's just to say, yes, there's a whole lot going on, but I think it would be a mistake to miss to, view it as anarchy or chaos. I do think it's the unraveling of long-standing systems and institutions that have kind of run their course and the relatively disorganized but still very energetic and very uh, dynamic emergence of new institutions and new systems. So, you know, on a massive scale, that's really interesting. That's really, wow, this is going to make a fascinating uh, dissertation in the year 2100. <laughs> but for right now, uh, we're, we're living through this. And so part of it, I think, is, is being able to, for, for, for us as individuals, as citizens, and as members of the legal profession, how do we cope with this? How do we make sense of it? I think the first aspect of it is accept the the nature of it, that it is unpredictable, that it is highly dynamic, and that we have very little control over it. And secondly is to say, okay, so what are our fundamental principles that are going to guide us through this? What are our values? What are our goals? What are the uh, objectives that we are hoping to achieve throughout this period as we kind of shape these new institutions and so forth. I think that's a really critical question for the legal profession now, especially when it comes to areas that I'm interested in, such as regulation and the formation of, uh, of the profession. So, yeah, so let's get to that. I mean, uh, there's a lot going on in the legal regulatory, uh, legal regulatory uh, space. What are you seeing right now? I mean, obviously, we've got, we've had a lot of developments coming out of British Columbia. There certainly seems to be a push for regulatory reform over there. And it's moving ahead with plans to create a single regulator for lawyers, notaries, and, uh, and licensed paralegals. What do you make of that? And how does that fit into this bigger picture about institutions? And what does it mean for the rest of the country? Yeah, thank you. That it's a great place to start, Eve. Honestly, because if I was making a list of the most important, I guess, legal sector specific developments, you know, setting aside war and pestilence and and everything else that we have to cope with, but if we're talking just within our community, our industry or, or sector, and if I'm making a list, like what's the number one thing for us to keep an eye on? I really think it is this development in British Columbia. And, and for people who aren't uh, fully informed on it, which is understandable because I think it's been kind of running under the radar a little bit, even in BC, uh, the uh, government of British Columbia 
released what it called uh, basically a, a consult. Well, it was called basically a consultation paper saying we intend to make some significant changes to legal regulation in British Columbia. And specifically, it is around the development of a new single regulator for all providers of legal services. Now, in BC, uh, as, as you may know, uh, there are actually two authorized legal services regulators. There is the Law Society of BC. There's also the, the Society of Notaries Public of BC, uh, which, which makes them unique in that, in, in that regard across Canada. And there has been a push recently amongst uh, paralegals in BC to say, we also wish to be licensed and authorized and, and regulated uh, as well. And so... What the government of BC has done in publishing this paper is say, we need a new single regulator, which is going to uh, have a mandate to, uh, to focus on access to legal services, to focus on the public interest above all in the, in the regulation and delivery of legal services. Now, what's really important to note is that when you read this intentions paper and you, and you kind of parse through some of what the government is saying there, what you don't get is this idea that we're going to ask the Law Society of BC to take over the, uh, the the regulation of other legal services professionals in this province, right? Because that model is available to them if they want. Ontario, uh, the government several years ago went to the Law Society of Upper Canada, as it then was, and said, hi, remember all those unauthorized paralegals you've been prosecuting and so forth? Well, now you're going to regulate them as licensees. And, and so that, and that's what has happened, I think, with limited mixed success in Ontario. Um, so, so BC had the opportunity to do that. And in fact, if, uh, several years ago, the then Attorney General of BC said to both of those regulatory societies, hey, could you get together and come up with, like, can you streamline this? Can you collaborate? We need a better way of regulating the market than this. So the two organizations met, and the outcome of that was basically the law society saying, so this is how we would take over notary regulation and more or less dispense with the notary society, which went about as well as you would think it would, and things didn't really move ahead from there. So the point of all that, if BC merely wanted the law society to expand its jurisdiction, it could easily have done that. Uh, a relatively straightforward amendment to the governing regulation, their governing statute. They're not doing that. They, in this intentions paper, it makes multiple references to a new regulator with a new mandate and a new focus and a new governance system with a new board of directors. And all of this says to me that what British Columbia's government is, or at least at the time of publishing this um, uh, this intentions paper, was envisioning was something brand new. And when it comes to the the regulation of legal services in Canada, and uh, and and the legal profession in BC has been galvanized by this as well. I think they should be uh, because I do think this is monumentally important. And we can talk a little bit about the implications of it, but I do think that if this goes ahead in more or less in in the form in which the the BC government is suggesting, I think that will be a sea change in the legal sector in Canada. I think it will lead to an entirely new approach to not just the regulation of legal services, but how we approach the purpose. And again, going back to those values and objectives of uh, legal services delivery uh, across the country. And so what, so what is that mandate or purpose that BC wants to 
I don't know, is it, ref- do they, is, is it, do they want to refresh it? Do they want to, or is it entirely different? I feel it's much more of an entirely different than a refresh. This feels to me more like a rebuild than a renovation. And, and when you look at the language that they're recommending for a new mandate, like most enabling legislation for law societies across Canada, in more or less, the mandate more or less comes down to your job is to protect the public, right? That is certainly how regulators have interpreted their mandate in the past. And how do we protect the public? Well, we keep away from the public anybody who isn't a lawyer who wants to provide legal services. And that's essentially it. Um, what this uh, what, the, what this new uh, proposed or suggested regulatory mandate would look like uh, is, is different in important ways. It says to promote and protect the public interest. And the public and the public interest are two different things. And protecting and promoting are two different things. They're related, but they're distinct. And there is a much uh, broader mandate and more flexibility and, and much more scope within a mandate like that. But the addition of public interest, as well as public, I think is really, really important because there is significant concern in a number of quarters, notably for the most part, not within law societies themselves or amongst their ventures, that legal services in Canada are not being regulated in the public interest. Or if they are, there is no particular reason to believe that structurally they are set up to do that. And and so this kind of brings us to the key element. There's a lot of different aspects to the intentions paper, and I do recommend people get a chance to read through it. But I think the fundamental one is this. The BC government is suggesting a different governance structure. As you know, right now in BC and basically in every uh, province and territory, the the benchers, which are essentially the board of directors uh, of the uh, of, of the organizations, are overwhelmingly lawyers. About eighty to ninety percent, depending on how many lay benchers constitute um, the, the the overall group, and and these lawyers are elected in elections that, for which they campaign, and they're elected by other lawyers who cast their votes for them. Now. The uh, and, and that's a really interesting model, and it's one that's been with us for a long time. But it's a model that when you look at it from the outside, you say, you know what, that looks a little bit less to me like responsible, um, transparent uh, regulation and a lot more to me like regulatory capture. And what the government of BC is suggesting that there would be a different uh structure for the board. They are very quick and very clear to say we are not recommending or suggesting that government appointees would constitute more than half or a majority of all uh, of all uh, directors because we recognize the importance of uh, you know self uh, regulation and independence of the bar which are two important concepts concepts that they're mixing up um, but nonetheless we can see a way forward where there might be three types of directors. One of these are uh, directors who are appointed by the government. A second is uh, directors who are licensees, not just lawyers, but licensees, elected by other licensees. And a third group, which are uh, uh, directors who are appointed by the other two groups in order to fill specific skill uh, requirements, qualifications. So when you read the, uh, the intentions paper, it essentially says no one group is going to have a majority vote. There'll be like a division of power, a triumvirate, if you like. That to me is what I think they're trying to communicate. That has, to this point, been considered unacceptable by the BC legal profession. The law society has come out and said, no. The CBA BC has come out and said, no. We require, we demand 
that there be not just lawyer control, but significant lawyer control and a lawyer majority of all the directors on the legal regulation for reasons of independence and self-regulation. At the end of the day, that's going to be the hill both sides, I think, are going to be prepared to die on. It's going to be a really, really important, and I think uh, either way, no matter which way it goes, it's going to be a, a, a precedent setter for regulation across the rest of the country. And, and, and which other jurisdiction in Canada is looking at this most closely? Is, would it be Ontario? Ontario, I think, has a lot of reasons to be looking at the governance of its law society at the moment, um, which if you're not, again, not in Ontario or not uh, closely uh, following its affairs, the, uh, the 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 board of directors, the bench, the benchers or convocation of the law society of Ontario, it's kind of a three ring circus at the moment. Um, there are we're seeing the emergence of slates of benchers and slates of bencher candidates. You might as well call them parties because that's what it comes down to. And they are parties with a very clear political affiliation. There is one group uh, which calls themselves Full Stop, and they are uh, they were opposed to the statement of principles that the Law Society published uh, several years ago as a requirement for all lawyers, I think unwisely. Um, there's another group calling itself the Good Governance Coalition, which is essentially an opposition group to the first. I have been told there are other slates that are being planned or are underway. And, uh, and, and and this is not a good development, I don't think, from any perspective. I don't think it's a good, uh, it's certainly not a good uh, development for professional governance because you simply don't see this in any other regulatory body for any professional group. But also because when you, when you get to this point where you've got competing slates of politically oriented benchers or bencher candidates seeking election, you have achieved the logical endpoint of uh, an elected bencher system where constituencies and what lawyers want is openly, nakedly, the entire purpose of someone becoming a bencher. So again, going back to what BC is saying, we want you to promote the public interest. How was it in the public interest that Ontario has developed a, a system whereby the next bencher election is going to be contested by political parties in all but name, rather than what is actually in the public interest? Yeah, and if I if I'm correct, I think I think uh, the uh, the report that you're referring to out of BC made that made that point quite clearly with the Clayton report that. that one of the reasons that these benchers are overstepping their mandates is because they're making electoral promises that fall way outside of their mandate. But let me let me throw something else in this. And because, you know, I think this whole notion of self-regulation, but just also regulation of the legal profession, uh, full stop, you know, that we are revisiting this at this particular time is sort of interesting. And because, uh, you know, we... You know, there is always a background discussion of access to justice. And we're talking about the public interest, which to me is somewhat connected to the question of access to justice and whether people have access to legal services in a relatively accessible way or affordable way. And then, you know, suddenly again, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the last week, I I think we do have to talk about open AI here. We have essentially a group of investors from Elon Musk to Peter Thiel, Infosys and Microsoft, who structured this company as a nonprofit so that they could focus its research on creating, you know, I guess, positive long-term human impact. So a few months ago, 
the company released sort of an extraordinary tool called Dolly, which can generate images from textual descriptions. So it's basically artificial intelligence, which creates images. Now, in the last month, it launched another AI tool, ChatGPT, that allows you to ask questions in natural language. And it'll give you a pretty informative, thoughtful, if not always exceptionally original answer in plain language. And, you know, I mean, I've tried it out myself and, you know, I asked, I asked it to draft me a confidentiality agreement for sharing, uh, for the sharing of business information in the province of Quebec. And, you know, I got something that was pretty good, although it, it, it cut off at the severability clause. <laughs> Interestingly, I guess you can see where I'm coming here. Like, this is a big deal for the legal profession. And are the regulators... Is this a grenade that's landing in their lap or is this something that they, they, they kind of know that they have to be thinking about? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I would imagine that uh, a tiny minority of, of ventures in Canada today and maybe a slightly larger tiny minority of, of losses that executives are aware of ChatGPT and what its potential implications are for for the legal sector, because you're absolutely right. I also have experimented with the chat function, and I have pretended to be a uh, an individual who enters something like um, I did in the American context. But uh, I live in California, and my uh, my landlord just told me that I got ten days to get out, or or he's going to throw me out. What are my options? Right, and I in a very kind of colloquial way, and it comes back within seconds saying, uh, "In California, you are uh, you are entitled to 30 days notice by your landlord for of eviction for non-payment of rent and 60 days notice for damage to property. If your landlord is attempting to remove you after more than 10 days, you may have a claim. You should consult a lawyer or speak with it with a tenant uh, association for assistance." And I put that together in 10 seconds. Right, um, and and that is at the very least, it is useful legal information. It it tells a person, a user, uh, a, a potential client, or a member of the public. Depend, you can describe this individual however you like, but it gives them actionable, reliable information that they can then use to make the next decision. And it's free and it's instantaneous. And this is just from the current 3.0 version. There's already a 4.0 version on the way, which I'm told is going to be uh, another quantum leap ahead. So what does this mean? I think what the emergence of technology like this is going to do, it's going to render nonsensical almost all of our arguments about what is the quote-unquote unauthorized practice of law, right? Because we have this idea that the practice of law is something that only lawyers may do, and if you are not a lawyer and you attempt to carry out an activity which falls into this category, then you are in violation of whatever the statute of regulation or, or, or law on this is. And, and again, you ask yourself uh, the question, is that in the public interest? Is it in the public interest to say you can't get this kind of information or even guidance because it's not being given to you by a lawyer? Now, in fairness, here in Canada, I have seen uh, law societies are re pretty reasonable about that. Legal, The provision of straightforward legal information does not fall under the, the umbrella of an authorized practice of law. Can't say the same for every American state, unfortunately. Um, 
but but at a, but a certain point, it's a it's a sliding scale on a pretty rapidly moving <laughs> sliding scale from information to knowledge to guidance to suggestions to directions to assistance to advice. Right, because that that's essentially the path that you follow uh, as a client on the way to getting a legal service. Now, what lawyers will say is that, to a greater or lesser extent, they'll say that's all ours. But they will, but, but they put up you know stronger and stronger barriers the closer you get down down that that continuum. That's all fine. The question that has to be asked, though, again, is where does the public interest lie on all this? Is it in the public's interest that they are protected from any risk, no matter how small, no matter how negligible, that something might go wrong. They might get some wrong information or some wrong, or, or some wrong guidance, which I'm not saying it's not real, right? But, um, but balancing that potential risk against the potential benefits that a service like this could provide, then I think if you are really balancing the risks and benefits, then you are doing your job as a regulator. If you, and, and, and doing it fairly and impartially. And again, when your regulator is run 80-90% by lawyers, it's hard for the general public to believe that you're doing it impartially. But, but, but at least you're doing your job. If you are categorically saying, no, only lawyers can do this stuff, then I think you are not just cutting off your own nose to spite your face, you're cutting off everybody's nose, you know, uh, to, to spite your face, because you are perpetuating the myth that the only way to get reliable legal help is through a lawyer that is not true and 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 i think that is just so obvious that it, it's almost embarrassing to have to make the case but the majority of the legal profession believes it and that is a huge problem it is a huge disconnect between what the legal profession believes to be true about itself and about the legal sector and what everybody else which I need hardly add is a much, much, much larger population, understands and believes and needs. There's a and and that's a collision. And and Chat GPT three and four and five are going to bring that collision closer and faster. And I don't have any confidence that the legal profession is going to be the one to walk away from that collision. That's interesting. Yeah, and uh, I mean the one thing I do sometimes wonder about it just because of the ease of use of this tool that I have been playing with for a few days now. I mean, it, it is a tool that could actually improve legal literacy amongst users. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that level of legal literacy alone, again, if, if, all we, if, if ChatGPT stopped right now and basically said, okay, we can provide reliable answers to basic questions about your legal rights and remedies and 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 routes uh, towards solutions. If they stopped right there and did nothing more than that, that would be that would be one of the greatest advances in access to remedies, access to legal remedies to life's problems that we have ever experienced. It would blow legal aid out of the water. Um, with all respect to legal aid and how groundbreaking it was in its time. Um, and, and I think it should be welcomed and it should be encouraged for precisely that reason. Well, I mean, and precisely on that point, I mean, is this, this isn't necessarily a bad thing for the legal profession. Oh, not at all. I mean, again, 
Now, I, here I sound not just like a broken record, but like a broken eight-track tape, because I've been talking about this for coming on to 15, 20 years. Lawyers who have the right approach to all of this, and this is the case for technology of almost every type, innovations of every type, look, this is not a threat to you. This is a tool you can use to improve the quality of your service or the accessibility of your service or the profitability of your firm. And I was saying that till I was blue in the face and then until whatever color comes after blue in the face. And a very, very, very small minority of lawyers has ever paid attention to that. And I uh, I don't want to say I've lost hope that uh, that will ever change, but my hope is not high on all that. Um, but no, I mean, it makes complete sense to say, listen, you know, if I was, if I'm having a law firm, I want a, a website that will have a chat GP chat app essentially running saying, here's some questions. Uh, you ask a question, our app will give you an answer. It'll copy us and we'll send you a follow-up email saying we think it's exactly right. Or we think eh, there's a little bit of nuance here because it is not right all the time. And sometimes it can be wrong in alarming ways, right? But use it as a tool with which you can serve people and ex expand your practice and so on and so forth. And yes, that option is available for lawyers to pursue if they want. It's just that in my experience, which is in this profession, which is now stretching well into um, its, well, it's come back when it's third decade, it's just not the way we do things. We we much prefer to, to regard these things as threats or disruptions, and we just don't like them. So I'm looking forward to meeting and speaking with the lawyers who are ready to embrace that as the exception rather than the rule. So I just, I just wrote, I just, uh, wrote a question, which is, what does ChatGPT portend for the future of legal services? And its answer, it's, it's a little longer than this, but it's the second paragraph says, one potential application in the legal field is as a tool for automating the generation of legal documents or contracts. This could potentially save time and resource resources for both legal professionals and clients. However, it is important to note that the use of artificial intelligence in the legal field will likely raise complex ethical and legal issues that oh will need gosh. to be carefully considered. It's not bad for that. that give me that answer in about that's pretty good. Uh, Twelve seconds. See, you should be interviewing ChatGPT three, <laughs> not me, because it's it's clearly um, it, it's it's clearly got the the correct insight. Yeah, so, so precisely, right? That that's why this should be welcomed, and I want this welcomed as a as a massive advance forward for 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 achieving our goals. Again, we go back. What's the goal? What's the purpose? Why do we have law? Why do we have legal regulation? Why do we do all these things? Because people have legal problems or they have more actually more accurately they have life problems which have legal aspects to them right and that's and that's an important distinction because as you know people have life problems all the time and those problems have different facets you could have a life problem which has a healthcare aspect and it has a legal aspect and it has a home ownership aspect and all these different uh, different areas and uh, and and ideally, yes, we would have like a a, a universal tool which could attack them all at one time. But at the very least, we want to have a system in place by which people are aware of the fact that they that these remedies exist and people are entitled to them by measure of being alive in this country. Um, we want to help to encourage people to use them. And that means going out into the communities, beating people where they are, um, going and talking to trusted intermediaries, such as places of worship and community centers and daycare centers and libraries and so forth, and training people to say, 
help. People are going to come in with, with issues and problems. And we can give you a tool which will help you to address the legal aspect, the legal dimension or facet of their particular problem. That would be a massive step forward. And the thing of it is, it doesn't need lawyers. You don't need lawyers to do that. If lawyers simply wanted to say, we just want to go on serving the people who are paying us X dollars per hour for their legal work, I would say, Godspeed, go go for it. That's wonderful. Um, I'm over here with the other 80 to 85% of the world that is not coming to you, that will never come to you, and trying to do something for them. So I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. That is the plea of every legal innovator I know out there in the regulatory sphere, in the technology sphere. It's like, we don't need you to help us. We don't need you to give us money. Just stop trying to bury us, if you would. So that would be really helpful. So so when when you say that, you know, the Law Society of BC wants to, you know, or I, is it in the process of redefining what the public interest is? Do we need to define what the public interest is? Um, you know, given given this... Given everything that's going on, uh, and you know, we do live in a vastly m- more complex society than we did even like 20, 30 years ago, you know, what does the public interest actually mean? Really important question, and it was actually the subject of an interesting Twitter thread uh, a few weeks back where some people are questioning, should we even define it at all, all right? And then who gets to define it? And is it the public? And does the public necessarily know what's in its best interest, which is an incredibly patronizing question, but you do see people asking it. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think it's important that we address ourselves to the issue of what the public interest includes or represents. I don't know that you can define it because I just don't think it's something which has hard edges. I think it's got soft edges and I think it bleeds into other areas. It's, as I said to someone the other day, they're talking about, can we create a silo for these things? And I said, don't think about it as a silo. Think about it as a, as a spotlight, which comes straight down, or maybe it's on a bit of an angle. And, and there's a really bright light set in the center. And the further you go out to the edges, it's softer and it's darker and there's more room for other things to operate. So, I think we could use a spotlight on on what the public interest is, and I think we need to have some robust discussions about what's included. What I think we can, however, include as fairly central to the public interest in legal services is that they are available and that they work. Right, that you know, I, that I can be made aware of them, that I can be given assistance uh, in in finding them, but fundamentally, that I can use them. And if we make, if if we decide that a uh, a critical core function of the legal services is that people can actually use them, and I think that's not too much to ask, then I think we also have to say we are utterly broken because again. 80, 85, 90%, depending on the sector you're working with, of people, it's not just that they're not going to lawyers and they're not going to courts and they're not going to to mediation, all these things. For the most part, it's not even occurring to them that we should be doing that. So what does the public interest start? The public interest in law and legal services starts with, can I use it? The same as for medical services, the same as for access to uh, firefighters and the police. If I call 911, is anybody going to come, <laughs> right? That's kind of important, you know? Um, if, if, if I go to a doctor and I say, give me some medicine, is the doctor going to give me any? Will the medicine work? <laughs> These are questions that other professions don't have to ask themselves, but we do. 
So the the legal profession is asking itself other questions as well. I think a big one, a big one that I hear from people, partners in law firms, uh, law firm leaders, is they talk a lot about the hiring market and you know the the volatility there and how it's inhibiting their ability to to grow or recruit the right talent. Clearly, this is an issue top of mind for them. In 2023, in the year ahead, it seems to me that law firms really will have to adapt their hiring and recruitment and retention strategies in a way that sort of just emphasizes, you know, staying power and long-term value contribution of the firm to the careers of, of their hires. You know, and I'm also hearing interesting things about law firm leaders saying that, you know, they need candidates whose fit is the right one in the, in the new kind of law firm culture that embraces diversity and inclusion, but also is keen to learn how the business of law works uh, and, you know, make an impact. Uh, what are you seeing on all this in, in this whole area? Oh, Yeah. Just so interesting and so important, and and yeah, when I when I hear law firm like partners and lawyers uh, sort of talking about you know uh, you know people, it's strange that you know associates don't seem to be interested in the partnership uh, ring anymore, and they don't want to do this and don't want to do that. And I just think of that Dilbert cartoon where Wally was saying, "Yeah, my last six bosses were all complete jerks," <laughs> you know. Um, you know, may, maybe the problem isn't the candidates, law firms. Maybe the problem is that your model isn't attractive, um, at, uh, at e- either in part or in whole. I mean, the the whole thing about uh, remote work, right? Which is a which is separate, but I think important a conversation. How law firms were utterly opposed to it, and many still are, and many are still trying to, you know, openly or or covertly trying to get back to everybody in the office all the time, but. What you will see um, sometimes from from law firms, not just a recognition of okay, some at home, some in the office, which is fine. It's a perfectly acceptable tactical response, but in the larger sense, you see a couple of I think enlightened law firms saying we can't mandate this stuff, right? We can't force people to come back into the office if they don't want to. What we need to do is make it worth their time and effort and their while to come into the office in the first place. Because if it's not worth them coming in, they won't. And I say, number one, that's exactly right. And number two, keep going, (laughs) right? Extend that logically, because this isn't just about making it worth their while to come into the office. It's about making it worth their while to. But what? How? How do you go about? How do you go about making it worth their while? Because it's it's you know th- I think this is something that uh, you know industries far beyond the legal industry are also struggling with. Oh yeah, uh, the when you when, when you okay, <sighs> dividing if you will employed lawyers or associates into two broad groups, which is a little unfair, but we'll do it. Um, there are those who are very much interested in sticking around for the longer term and those who are not, right? And these are both perfectly valid, right? A lot of people say, I'm here for two or three years, pay down my debts, get a get some recommendations and experience, and I'm going to go off and do virtually anything else. Um, and and I don't think law firms are, over, are that uh, focused on trying to retain those folks, and I don't think they should be their number one priority either. And then there's a second group that says, I want to be here for the long term. This is of interest to me. This model, this approach, this this kind of lifestyle, for whatever reason, I would um, I, w- I would like to pursue that. And that that second group is obviously smaller, um, and, uh, and 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 has different characteristics. So um, 
from the from the perspective of a law firm which wants to not just retain but to encourage these sorts of folks it has to be asking itself and what is it you're looking for from the experience of working here frank you could ask that of the other group as well but what is it that, what is it that will make you want to come and when i look at surveys of this type and when i'm talking to people one of the overwhelming um, responses that that associates tend to give is, I want time with partners. I want to work with them. I want to shadow them. I want to get feedback from them, and not just send it, you know, all red lines all over my 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 draft memo, but like feedback and mentoring and development. I want to get better at this. I want to make my career out of this. And I'm coming to one of these big respected or mid-sized respected law firms, and you are well-respected in your field. I want to learn from you and with you and through you. And and that's, I think, real. It's genuine. It's completely reasonable. And the great majority of law firm partners that I have encountered simply don't care about that. That's not something they want to spend their time doing. Right? It's mm. not billable. It's not. It can, it's not going to advance them. What they want is time with their clients to get business, to get more business, to ensure the client doesn't walk away, and then time to bill as much work as they can. Because for some reason, we still judge partners on the number of hours they bill, as well as associates. Or they might they might take someone under their wing to assist them in their practice and the growth of their own practice. And you know, and that and that doesn't mean that it is a purely transactional thing. There there might actually be. A real relationship to build there, but I think what you're describing isn't necessarily happening systemically. No, not at all. And and it's very tough. I mean, believe me, you know, I spent good 10, 15 years talking directly to law firms and listening to them on these issues. And I get all the reasons why it's very difficult for law firms to act systematically or institutionally because uh, because power simply isn't arranged that way within firms. But when we get down, when we get back to this question of, you know, getting people to work and to stay and so forth, you've you basically really have to ask yourself about what's the value of the model and the approach that we have here. And this goes back to, and I mentioned at the start of our conversation, um, the profession has to ask itself about its values and its objectives and its goals. Same thing for a law firm, right? What are we here to actually achieve, and what's the most important thing? As far as this law firm is concerned, and if and, and at most law firms, it's about profit for partners, and that's not an accusation; it's just, that's just a description. So um, I, there is an opportunity. There's always an opportunity with every new set of lawyers coming to the firm. There's an opportunity to start fresh and to say we want to take a different approach here. Um, uh, and 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 I think the benefits to a firm that took that approach would be significant. But I think at the end of the day. The talent question, the recruitment and retention promotion question, these are just symptoms, right? The harder it is for you to get good people to engage with your firm and stay there, the clearer the signal that is being sent to you that what you've got here isn't working very well anymore and it needs to be either vastly upgraded or replaced altogether. That is the message very few law firms are in a position to listen to it. So there is another message that's been issued recently, and it's, you know, I mean, I'm not sure it's necessarily come as a surprise, but it's still perhaps a little bit shocking, is this national study, you know, you know, which involves uh, the Federation of Law Societies and uh, uh, the Canadian Bar Association, too, also participated in the funding of this uh, survey. And But uh, it was conducted by a group of researchers at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec, and it just 
you know, it sort of paints this portrait of just sky high levels of psychological distress and, you know, burnout. And I, I mean, we all knew there was burnout in the legal profession, but, you know, when, when they kind of compare it to the general Canadian population, it's just way off the chart. And, and, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I understand that uh, issues of psychological distress are on the rise in other areas of the Canadian population. And I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, but uh, there seems to be a strong message coming out of that report that, you know, uh, the legal profession really needs to do something, something and something soon to move towards a more sustainable and healthy practice of law in this country. You know, it goes so far in its recommendations, which it released a little bit after the, the issuance of the, the first report, that not only do law firms have to destigmatize mental health problems and emphasize health as part of part and parcel of legal practice, which is a sort of an extraordinary thing that we have to say, but they're actually putting in question the sustainability of the billable hour business model. If we are to match our ambitions to heal the, the, the legal profession with with concrete actions. Yeah. Well, and there's there's so much to unpack there. And just quickly on that last point, I mean, uh, I, I think as a pricing mechanism, the billable hour is it's convenient but highly in, inefficient. And I think at the end of the day, actually undervalues what lawyers could be could be doing and could be earning. But in in the broader sense, uh, particularly of um, in this context of wellness, here's the thing: if even the largest law firm in the country didn't require law, any of its lawyers to bill more than 800 hours a year, right? There, we would not be talking about the billable hour as a cause of mental distress and emotional burnout, right? It, it, the, the, the fact that we are requiring people to bill a certain number of hours in itself is not the problem. The problem is that we are setting that target so high it is crushing people underneath it. Right. So, you know, sometimes sometimes the answer is greed and we just have to say out loud the answer is greed. Um, but but when you look at the results of that survey, which really are shocking and and I saw that survey being presented uh recently at the International Conference of Legal Regulators in Chicago, regulators from all over the world, and jaws were on the floor listening to those to those results. The one that jumped out at me is Something in the range of about twenty-four percent of 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 all the people surveyed um, said that at some point during the legal career they had considered suicide. I know it's, it's crazy, right? And it's like it is. It, it's like that's that's insane. And imagine like first day of law school being well, welcome to the legal profession. Uh, one in four of you is going to consider killing themselves over the course of your careers. Right. Look to your left. Look to your right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. One of you is going to try to end end their life. Or we'll consider it. I think I think considering it is more the term that was used in the report. But yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. We're considering it, and even considering it, right? You know, is just so. Um, so okay. So that's fine. So it's an it's an outrage. It's awful. How do you fix that? How do you deal with that? And I think part of it is you recognize the fact that there's a tremendous amount of greed in this industry, and it's greed by people who are in a position of forcing other people to work very long hours for their benefit. So again, let's just call that what it is. But a really big aspect of it, and this goes back to my interest in lawyer formation and, and licensing and preparation, is people come into this profession and they're not ready. 
they are not ready for what they are going to be asked and required to do. They are underprepared, they are undertrained, they are underexperienced, and the amount of stress, the transition from school to practice, and this has been documented in, in, in US studies, the amount of stress in the transition from school to practice is unbelievably high. And there are no supports in place, or there have not been supports in place up to this point. That is starting to change. Alberta, to its credit, is, de- is developing a mandatory course for lawyers in the first couple of years. Ontario recently uh, decided to create something similar, especially people moving into, into sole practice. We are recognizing that we are credentialing people too early and that we are saying to them, hi, welcome to the legal profession. You can do anything that is allowable under the sun for a lawyer to do. Go and do it. And, and they're not ready to do it. They're not ready to run a business. They're not ready to serve clients, not ready to take care of themselves. We can make a huge impact. And this is also what the findings of the survey found as well. If we were to help people develop at the start of their careers, give them resources, give them tools, give them safety nets, give them support, and help them make this transitional process easier and better, we would see a significant drop in those levels of distress and 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 upset like law is not a stress-free profession right if you don't want to be if you know there, there are other professions that you know won't have that involved in it and there should be some stress because we're we're taking people's lives in our hands in a lot of ways and we should take that seriously and that should weigh on us with with do with a due amount of concern and burden but it shouldn't be to the extent that we have allowed it i think if we train people, help them, form them better, we will see a real improvement in that regard. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, among among those uh, recommendations in, in the follow-up report, there's, you know, improving CPD or continuing professional development that actually incorporates psychological health as a core skill. Are you, are you talking about that or are you talking about also just uh, when you're saying that we're throwing them out there and they're not prepared, it's because they're not prepared to tackle like all the areas of law that uh, that uh, that come under the sun, or is it just that uh, you know do we do we have to rethink about how how we mandate them with certain types of files? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and certain kinds of responsibilities. Um, I, I think that okay, the the problem, and I do think it's a problem of a universal, general, and in practical terms, irrevocable license to practice law after three years of law school, a year of articling or its equivalent, and a short uh, bar admission course. Um, I think that's, that, that is a separate problem, and we can have and need to have a separate conversation about how do we actually authorize and train people to provide t- different types of legal services. But I think what it offers us in this regard particularly is an opportunity to re-examine the process by which we say to someone, you may enter the practice of law. Right now, the uh, a law society will let someone into the practice of law if they can s- say, and now I'm talking about domestically trained candidates, here is a deg- law degree from an accredited law school. Here's my uh, little statement of certification signed off by my articling principal. And here are my passing grades on the exams in my bar admission course. And the law society says, great, you're clearly qualified to be a lawyer. In you go right? Um, Which is a credentials-based system and does not actually assess whether the person is actually fit or competent or ready to be a lawyer. And what I've been uh, pushing, and I'm not obviously not the only one or the first one, but I'm part of the group that is pushing this idea that, no, let's try to get a definition of what day one competence for a lawyer looks like 
and design a system that will allow people to acquire those competencies and then demonstrate them to the regulator to say, look, never mind my degrees, never mind the certifications and the boxes that are checked off. Let me show you that I have the abilities and the skills and the knowledge and the temperament to be a lawyer on their first day of practice because you have established what that criteria is. And the regulator looks at them and does this assessment and says, yep, looks good to me. And now the regulator can say with confidence to the public, we have a system and these are the elements of it. And we applied it and we are satisfied. And so this person is ready to serve you. You can have confidence in, in this individual. And you can say to the lawyer themselves, and you too should have confidence because now you know what's required of you and you know that you, you possess it. And I think, again, we would go a long way to drying up imposter syndrome in the law if we could do that as well. In a recent law post that you wrote, very recently, uh, you, and I think you're reflecting, you mentioned your um, this conference in, in Chicago. But you said that, and I thought this was interesting, I, kind of, I was wondering what you meant by it. You, we need a better term to describe legal regulators, than, and then you, you compared them to NGOs. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what you meant there. Yeah, uh, it actually it was actually really interesting. It came out of a, a, a conversation, as most of these things do. With you know, that's a great thing about in-person conferences; you can talk to people again. Um, but it was a, it was a conversation. I was talking with some regulators from Singapore and from Ireland, which you know, and from Canada. It was quite a uh, quite a mixed bag, and we were talking about all these different elements of of what regulators have to do because it was a very like it was a great conference, but there were so many different topics that we had to we had to look at and, and to deal with. And and I said at some point, you know what? We're gonna have to come up with a better name than regulator because here's the problem. We're doing and now and when I say we, I'm talking about legal regulators, but you can even paint this more broadly for for, for, for the profession wide. But regulators were set up to regulate. Right, you know, and we can have a, a conversation about what that means, what the root of regular actually uh, suggests to us. But fundamentally, it is about we are making sure that there is a, a baseline level of quality and reliability to the services that are being offered and to the individuals and organizations that are offering them. Fundamentally, at, at a very broad sense, that's what regulation in any industry or sector um, uh, uh, comes down to. But here's the problem. We are now doing so much more than that. And, and when you look, again, going back to the conversations we had at the, at the, at the start of this conversation, um, what else are regulators being asked to do now? Well, be, well you also have to improve uh, access to justice. Uh, and access to legal services. Um, and oh yeah, wellness, massive problem. Do something about that. Um, and do a better job of training people in their first years uh, as as lawyers. Um, oh, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, that kind of stinks right now in the law. We are not remotely representative of the country that we are part of. So, you know, you got to take steps in that direction. Oh, you know what? Practice skills for lawyers, they're terrible. You need to mandate some CPD for this, this, and this. And all of a sudden you're like, this is a lot more than just regulation. It is certainly more than, quote unquote, protecting the public. And it is certainly more than anything close to our capacity in terms of budget, in terms of bandwidth and personnel and perceived scope and authority within the profession we are regulating for us to manage. So this is what I kind of suggested. We need to kind of reframe a little bit what we are asking of the regulation of uh, the regulators of the legal profession which i think again in turn and now we're putting the camera back a little more 
forces us to ask uh, the question of what are we trying to achieve? And 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 the great thing about times of great upheaval and 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 seeming chaos and and system change that we are experiencing now is that we not only can but have to ask those questions in a very kind of fundamental way. This was not a conversation anybody would have had any interest in five or seven years ago. I think they should have, but trust me, they weren't. Um, but now we can actually and need to have these kind of conversations. What is it that we are trying to do here? What's the purpose? What's the point of, of there being a legal profession, of there being regulation of, of the legal profession? So when I said an NGO, it's kind of like we are now not just regulators, we are policy organizations. We are instruments of, uh, of, of social policy in a lot of different ways, right? And not just because of, you know, special interest groups or all this quote-unquote woke nonsense that you hear from people saying, oh, this is just, you know, wacky wokeness and so forth. No, it's not. I made this point to some ventures I was talking to recently about EDI. I said, look, you may have your own views on EDI. I'm sure some of you do. And you may say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if, if it's a, what color or, or, uh, or gender or affiliation or orientation someone has. All that matters is that they're a good lawyer, blah, blah. I said, you know what? Y'all can believe what you like. I'm here to tell you there is a public expectation, a social expectation now across society that EDI is real. That you are, and if you don't take it seriously as a company, as an organization, as an entity, you will lose public legitimacy. And believe me, I said to them, you do not, as a regulator of legal services, want to lose public legitimacy because that's, at the end of the day, the only currency that's keeping you going. So those are the kind of things we have to have a shakeout of. And it's why, Eve, I'll tell you, when I see the prospect of uh, potential governance overhauls in law society, I am not just not sorry about it, I am actively encouraging it. Because, again, to speak openly about it, I see so much resistance among the regulatory bodies of, of, uh, of, of law in Canada and in the US and in many other countries where lawyers are effectively controlling the regulator, so much resistance to all of these forces, these mandates, this reality of the encroaching world upon us. Um, and it's like either lead, follow, or get out of the way. You clearly don't want to lead. You don't seem to be interested in following. Maybe it's time you let someone else have a shot at this. So that's that's kind of where, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm finding myself coming around to it. What we're doing, whether it worked fine in 1957, I don't know. I wasn't around. Did it work fine in 1983? I don't know. I was in grade 10. But it's not working fine now. So let's start by admitting that. And then immediately start going to, so let's make it better. Let's look for solutions. Let's try things that might work that will be a little bit different. And some of them will fail. That's okay. Some of them will be like, man, that kind of worked, but you know, didn't get entirely. Then try that as well. But we need the space to experiment. We need the space to broaden options, not just for lawyers, not just for the service providers, but for members of the public. And we need to try harder than we're trying right now. That's my hope for where this whole process will take us here in the legal sector. You know, I don't want to make this a seg, but it does make me think of it. <laughs> because we're talking about transformation. We're talking about innovating governance and these sorts of things. And I got to ask you because you're, and we are jumping into a different topic here. You have been a commentator on social media. You've, you've been on Twitter since almost the beginning, as far as I can remember. 
It's a platform that you've used wonderfully to communicate your ideas. And I, I got to say, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of lawyers have been very good at using Twitter to help the public understand things about the law, uh, communicate their expertise. Law Twitter really is a thing. And I know a lot of people have a difficult relationship with it, but, and, it, and it's maybe in, increasingly more difficult for some. What, you know, let's talk a little bit about Twitter and what everything that has transpired over the last couple of months means for all the legal commentators out there. Well, I mean, I, I think it's really depressing what has happened to Twitter um, with with the bid, the ultimately successful bid by Elon Musk to buy it, uh, and then um, if I had if I had the first real clue about what he was doing, I would let you know. I just I just don't. Um, I I think flailing is the best uh, verb I can come up with to describe uh, what he's doing, um, and I and I and I tend to subscribe to the notion that. You know, you know how the theory is that Donald Trump never actually wanted to be president. He wanted to run but lose. Um, I, I, I think I think there's something to be said for that. That Musk wanted to offer but not actually be accepted. Um, and you know, be careful what you wish for. So, so yeah, Twitter is 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 a real mess. But um, and, and the tragedy is there is there is there is there any. Uh possible positive outcome of his taking over the reins as you might can we can we hope for some positive outcome oh yeah no i think is this is this just all going to sort itself out or there you know or there is it just about us learning some lessons about <laughs> uh billionaires breaking toys uh well i think we're definitely all learning that um i and and if if nothing else comes out of this, the burial of the phrase "move fast and break things" is long overdue. <laughs> Bury it, but nails in its coffin, you know, whatever, burn the ground. So, um, I think there are still good outcomes in in terms of Twitter um, resurging as the useful. I think not just useful. I think in a lot of ways essential uh, public square and and global communications tool that it has it, it has been. For the last several years, um, I, I recently posted on Twitter, "I'm I'm not leaving," um, or at least I'm not leaving anytime soon. Um, and among other, among other things, like I was here first, <laughs> and um, and and I like it here, and and I'm not going to cede this place to someone who doesn't want me here because I have a right to be here as well, and I intend to be here after he goes. I think I think there's a there, there's a route forward by which he sells at a loss, but he sells this thing to somebody else. Um, but there's also a route forward to which it just essentially gets it, it, it through various mechanisms, it becomes MySpace or, or, or something like that and just goes away. Um, what I think the, for the legal profession, the broader lesson of Twitter, even if the whole thing goes out in flames tomorrow, is there is not just an opportunity, but an appetite for people to gain, this goes back to the points I was making earlier, people want to know about the law, and they want to know how the law affects them, and they want to know what the law requires of them, and what the law allows them to do, and what it empowers them to do. And there's a real interest in that, and every lawyer who's been on Twitter who has interacted with members of the public or potential clients understands that. It's a great way. You can have great conversations on Twitter. 
they tend to be individual conversations. Threads break down pretty fast. If you want an actual good group conversation, much as I hate to say it, go to LinkedIn. Um, but but this is what it should be a lesson to us to say people want to know about this. It matters to them. They care about it. And you can and again. There is a, a robust business case for lawyers to be involved in Twitter, fine, or to be involved in any kind of uh, public square or public communications methodology. But you know what? And this is the other thing that keeps people on, on Twitter. It's fun. It's good. It's good to react to people. It's good to interact and have and learn from people and do this kind of stuff. It is part of the human experience. And the great thing is that we don't allow ourselves that as lawyers nearly as often enough. Go back to the wellness issue, right? We, we tend to hide from the humanity of being a lawyer and we tend to hide from the human impact of being a lawyer. And some of it's hard. I get that. And, and some of it's challenging. But what, what even, even a little thing like Twitter shows us is that people want to connect with us as lawyers. They want to learn from us. They want to know about what they can do and so forth. And it's an honor. It's a privilege to be able to, to make that connection. So yeah, I would hate to see Twitter go down in flames, but you know what? Something else will come along because we now know there's a need, there's a desire, there's an appetite for a a way for people. We want to connect with each other, especially after the pandemic. We are all desperate to connect with each other as people. And again, I come back to this as my constant theme. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. You know, I, I feel badly because on one hand, I spend half my time grousing and sort of say, oh, things aren't as good as they could be. And it's just so frustrating and lawyers are this and so forth. And I get that. And that's, you know, that's my, I, you know, I'm, me and my therapist are working on that. But the, uh, but the, the flip side of that and the much brighter flip side of that is there is so much opportunity. We are, we have a, we are, have an opportunity now. We have the potential to take steps forward and to pursue paths forward that we look back 10, 15, 20, or even longer, 50 years from now and say, wow, there, what we were on the cusp of a golden age of legal access and legal help and legal um, fulfillment of people's rights and, and, and their fundamental dignity. And we didn't know it, but it was there for, for the taking. And, and, and we did it. We made the right calls. And this is not something which is, GPT-3 is not going to provide this for us and technology is going to provide that for us. We are going to provide it for each other as people, as individuals reaching out. This is a conversation I had the other day with Jim Sandman, um, Legal Services Corporation, longtime access to justice champion in the U.S., talking to him a few days ago. He said, technology alone isn't enough. You need intermediaries. You need members of, you got, You need to go to a community, meet people where they are, find trusted intermediaries and say, we want to help you help the people who are coming to you in order to access the law. It's about connection. It's about relationships. Embrace that now. This is our chance. The door is open for us to pursue this as lawyers, as individuals, through our lawyer development process, licensing, ongoing competence, everything, right? You, you, you talk about the chaos, you talk about the seeming anarchy, but at the end of the day, it all boils down to this opportunity to reconnect with people, use the law for the betterment of people and for our own humanity. It's there for the taking. Let's go grab it. Well, that's a great message to end this interview on, especially as the uh, holiday season is upon us. Jordan Perlong, I want to thank you so much for joining us again and uh, happy holidays. Thank you so much, Eve, and the very same to you.
You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us if you can, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to our Droit Moderne podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. We'll catch you next time. Hello, I'm Steve Bugeaud, President of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system, protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President. Episode 1 is out now.